0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of every single one of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. And as Dan said, Merry Christmas. Um, It is great to be a church that follows the church calendar so that we get to party a lot longer. Um, So don't stop, keep celebrating. We've got four more days. Um, Normally, my Christmas tree would still be up, but it's not yet. I'll get to that in a second. Um, But I know for some of us, it's not necessarily the natural movement of our soul to celebrate. For some of us, celebration is kind of difficult. And so this morning, I want to talk about something that keeps us from celebrating who Christ is and what he's done for us, and that is cynicism. We're talking about cynicism. It's an attitude of jaded negativity that assumes the worst about people and about the world. I think it's very easy to be cynical about Christmas, especially here in America. Um, You can definitely count me on Team Charlie Brown. Uh, for being cynical and jaded about the commercialism of modern Christmas. Um, It's not really hard for me to believe that lots of the nostalgic feelings that we have and songs we sing and movies we watch are really just part of a giant commercial machine to get us to buy more stuff. That's a narrative that I find easy to believe. This year, I actually went even further in my identification with Charlie Brown um, by accident. so Lena and I decided for the first time, we were going to cut down our own tree, magical. We were in the mountains, we looked for a tree farm, and found a small family-run organic farm that sold Christmas trees. We're like, this is meant to be. And so we go there, we meet the farmer, and he takes us to the hillside, and then this was the best tree of the lot. (Laughter) um, it's on my curb right now. It literally doesn't have a needle left on it. It looks like tumbleweed, so much so that the, the people didn't even grab it from the curb. I think they didn't think it was a real tree. Um, so it's still there, just waiting for somebody to come and adopt it, give it a home. It's uh, It was sad, but we'll remember this tree forever. That's that's the positive thing. It's, it is. It just needs a little bit of love. Um, in all seriousness, though... I know that I, my personality, I can be pretty prone to cynicism. It's easy for me to see the negative in things before I see the positive. And some of you may be the same way. But I think beyond even our personalities, I think that we live in a cynical age. We live in a culture that's mistrustful of leaders, institutions, and ideals. Um, I think one snapshot for me that kind of reveals this move towards cynicism that we've taken in our culture is the difference between the most popular political drama of the 90s, The West Wing, one of my favorite shows, and one of the most popular political dramas of the past few years, House of Cards. For those of you who haven't seen these shows, um, I don't necessarily recommend House of Cards. I do recommend West Wing if you just want to kind of escape from reality um, West Wing is this sort of fantastically optimistic portrayal of politics in the White House, where even when people disagree, they really they want the best for our country, and really there's, there's deep relationships and, and friendships that make you feel good at the end of the day, no matter what really happens. Meanwhile, in House of Cards, paints a picture of our world and of politics where it is absolutely clear, everybody's out to get everybody else, it is dog-eat-dog. Everybody is climbing tooth and nail to get to the top of the ladder. And if you have to push everybody else off on the way, that's what you got to do. Everything is about a power grab. Even if someone does something that might look like an act of kindness, you can be sure that beneath it is an ulterior motive. They're just trying to steal something and to get power from you. And honestly, I find House of Cards to be a little bit more realistic to me today. I see that in our world, and honestly, I think we do have a bit of an earned cynicism, right? We've seen so many leaders, both politicians, even pastors, fall and fail the very people that they were meant to serve, and cynicism is really our protective mechanism to keep us from being hurt again, and many of you here today may have been hurt by the church in your own life in the past. But at its heart, I think that cynicism boils down to this. It's an absence of faith and of hope. It's an absence of faith and of hope. And while in many cases, cynicism, I think, is deserved, it can start to become the way that we see and interact with everything. It starts to seep out into all the things that we look at. It starts to become the lens through which we view everything in the world and in our lives. It can even start to color the way that we view God. In today's gospel reading from Luke, we're introduced to a man named Simeon. And Simeon was somebody who I think managed to resist cynicism through a very long life of unfulfilled longing. And I think that he has a lot to teach us about how to cultivate the opposite of cynicism, faith and hope for the long haul. So that we can actually experience peace right in the midst of this crazy world. So, if you want to turn with me um, to, to Luke chapter two, starting in verse 22, our passage today in the gospel starts with Mary and Joseph bringing a 40 day old infant Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God through sacrifice. Basically, a way of saying that their child is a gift who belongs to God even before he belongs to them. It's a pretty radical way to view your child. We also get a clue. For their economic status. Luke says that they offered turtle doves or pigeons, the sacrifices for a family who couldn't afford to buy a lamb to offer to the Lord. As, as we've been reminded in past weeks, Jesus grew up in a low income family. This is where he came from. But when they enter the temple, the Holy Family almost fades into the background as they encounter this man, Simeon. And we don't learn much about him. Except that in verse 25, it says that he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and burst out into a song that we'll talk a little bit more about in a bit. It's an interesting scene to picture. I don't know exactly how it went down. I don't know whether he went up and, you know, talked to Mary and got permission first, or whether this random old man just ran up and snatched the baby and started singing. I don't know what it looked like, but it was a powerful scene. But it's clear that this man had spent a long life of waiting specifically waiting for the consolation of Israel, the liberation from sin and oppression that depended on the coming of the world's true king, the Messiah. Simeon was waiting for God's kingdom to overturn the kingdoms of this world, to overturn the houses of cards that are full of broken promises and hypocrisy. He was waiting for the Messiah to come and to, as we sing, make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found to set things right, both in this world and for eternity. But it's interesting, this Greek word that gets translated, waiting, or looking forward, can also be translated, or can also mean, to welcome, or to receive with hospitality. So I think Simeon actually shows us what it looks like to be a people who are hospitable to hope, who actively welcome faith and hope. Into our lives. And Luke makes it clear that Simeon's ability to wait in faith, to be hospitable to hope, came from the Holy Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit rested on him, revealed to him, led him into the temple. Simeon knew how to receive the Spirit, listen to the Spirit, walk by the Spirit of God in his life. And so, with the rest of our time, I want us to look at two ways that I think Simeon shows us how to resist cynicism and how to be hospitable to hope. Two ways that are also foundational to a life of walking by the Spirit. So first, Simeon shows us that if we want to be people of hope, who can wait without cynicism, experience peace, we need to look in the right place and learn how to steward our attention. We need to learn how to look in the right place and steward our attention. I've become increasingly convinced over the past few years that maybe the single most precious resource that we have in our lives, that we possess, is our attention. Because as the saying goes, we become what we behold. The things that we give our attention to will determine who we are, the kind of people that we become. If our attention is focused for hours a day or a week on pictures of everybody else's living their best life now, we'll become people who are obsessed with image. If we spend hours reading wire cutter articles about the best product for this and the best product for this and for that, we'll become endless consumers. If we spend hours a day looking at our email, our attention is focused on our email, we will be workaholics. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think the same applies just as much to our attention. The richest people in the world today are the people who have figured out how to monetize our attention because they know that our attention is valuable. And so they design products, social media, devices, apps, even news sources to outcompete others for our attention. And so these free services, so called, that we use, like Google, Instagram, Facebook, even maybe your favorite news source, are actually not free. They are funded by the valuable resource, the most valuable resource you have, your attention, a finite currency we possess. And so these people will do whatever it takes to grab and to take hold of our attention because it is precious to them. It is financially valuable. And I think that we, on the whole, are far too willing to pay that price and to give our most valuable resource away to things that give very little often in return. We cheapen our attention by handing it over to the first bidder. And we might be stingy with money, but utterly wasteful with our attention. And so our attention becomes captured, you know, either by distractions, things that just give our brain a brief buzz while time whizzes by, meaningless games, endless notifications, scrolling through social media, YouTube videos that funnel us down a slope until we've spent hours watching video after video, or our attention is often captured by what we find in the biggest headlines, the people, the places, the events that make the news. When we assume that the political games, the public scandals, the stock market ups and downs that we read about in the paper, these are the most important things, because they're the ones in the headlines. And when these are the places where our attention rests, it's no wonder that we become cynical because our vision becomes occupied with things that are either trivial or terrible. But Simeon did not give his attention away to the first bidder. He carefully guarded and stewarded his attention through years of waiting. He wasn't distracted, he wasn't captivated by headlines from Rome or even from the local religious celebrities. Instead, He spent his time fixing his attention on God through worship. Luke describes him as devout, reverent. And later in our passage, we meet someone else, another prophet named Anna, who Deacon Ashley preached to us about, well, a few weeks ago. And we're told by Luke that Anna did the same thing, that she did not leave the temple, worshiping from fasting in the temple day and night. These were people of worship. So what does worship have to do with attention? Well, everything. Listen to this quote about worship from Eugene Peterson. Pastor Peterson writes that worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules, speaks, and reveals, creates, and redeems, orders, and blesses. And the cornerstone of worship, prayer, is that act in the life of faith, which consciously and deliberately enters into a speaking and listening attentiveness before God. Whenever we concentrate, focus, and attend, we pray. Prayer is the coming into awareness, the practicing of attention, the nurturing and development of personal intensity before God. I just love that quote. That worship and prayer is an act of attentiveness to God, of focus and presence to our Lord. And Simeon did this. Simeon nurtured and developed his focus on God through worship. Because his attention was available, because he wasn't looking in the same direction as everybody else, he was ready and able to see the one he was waiting for. Where everybody else around him, besides Anna, saw nothing more than a poor Jewish family with an infant from a backwater town that nobody really cared about, Simeon saw the salvation of God. In this child, Simeon saw something that was more transfixing than any scream something more tra- world-transforming than the antics of any king, he saw the answer not only to his own waiting and longing, but to the longings and to the need of the whole world. And so he breaks out in a song of praise as he grabs the children, child into his arms, a song that's become one of the regular prayers of the church for thousands of years. Simeon's song, the Nunc Dimittis, starting in verse 29. He says this, Lord, And the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Even while Simeon's material situation, this is amazing to me, even while his material situation remained completely unchanged, he experienced the peace that he longed for, simply by laying eyes on this child. Because in him, he saw the fulfillment of all of God's promises to him to Israel, to the world, I wonder if you and I were there that day, would we have seen what Simeon saw? Or would we have gone our way just like everybody else? Would we have seen it? I think too often we miss what God is doing because we're looking in the wrong direction. We're sidetracked by distractions or seduced by the famous and the powerful and the sensational. And one reason I believe we fall into cynicism is that we place our faith in these things. We put unwarranted hope in fallen humans, in perfect institutions. We place a weight on creatures that they are unable to bear. So Simeon calls us to offer the gift of our attention to Christ, a gift that truly is more valuable than gold, frankincense, or myrrh. But he also shows us that Jesus may not be in the place that we expect. We may not find him in his kingdom, in the headlines, and in the people that everybody else is looking to. So where can we find him? Where are good places to place our attention? Well, a great place to start are the places that Jesus has promised to be present to us, places he has guaranteed that if we attend to them, he will show up there. In his written word in the sacraments, in prayer, in other believers, through the presence of his Holy Spirit, and also in the poor. And so some questions for you to consider are first, what people, humans, and institutions have you placed unwarranted faith in? And what are the distractions that you are allowing to cheapen your most precious resource, your attention? And second, how can you live a life of worship by giving the best of your attention, your first portion to God? One very simple practice that you may want to put into practice this new year is one that could change your life. Don't let your phone be the first thing you look at in the morning and the last thing you look at before going to bed. Get an alarm clock if you need to. They actually still make them, believe it or not. Charge your phone outside your room. Attend to God in scripture or prayer before you attend to your screen. Scripture before screens. It's easy to remember, it's very simple, and it can change your life. So the first way to cultivate hospitality to hope that Simeon shows us, the first way to resist cynicism, is by looking in the right place, stewarding our attention. But the second thing he shows us is that we need to practice the obedience of faith. We need to practice the obedience of faith. See, we tend to think of faith as this sort of mental agreement with an idea, or maybe a feeling we have towards God that sometimes feels strong and sometimes feels weak. My faith feels strong today. Tomorrow, it feels weak. It goes up and down. But faith in Scripture is neither of these things. It's about lived trust, lived loyalty to God. It's what Paul calls the obedience of faith at the beginning and end of Romans. Faithful obedience, if you think about it, is what allows this scene in Luke to happen in the first place. Jesus' parents are obedient to the law and coming to offer the sacrifices for their son. And Simeon is obedient to the leading and the prompting of the Spirit to come and to walk into the temple and come up to this family. That's how this holy connection happened, through obedience. So how did Simeon learn to walk in step with the Spirit like this? Again, we don't learn that much about him. But we do know from Luke that he was righteous and devout. Righteousness, it's about living a life of justice and mercy and doing good to those in need. Devotion, it's about living a life of prayer and worship like we just talked about. In other words, Simeon lived a life, not complicated, of active love of God and active love of neighbor. It wasn't spectacular. It wasn't flashy. It was daily. It was what, again, Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Maybe my favorite description of Christian discipleship, a long obedience in the same direction. See, faith is less like a feeling or an idea, and it's more like a muscle. And like any muscle, it has to be exercised or it begins to atrophy. It gets weak. We have to exercise it through daily obedience. And I think often, frankly, our struggles in our faith are a lot less mysterious than we think they are. You know, if I stop coming regularly to worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, if I rarely crack open my Bible, if I pray only every once in a while, and I'm never getting outside of myself to help people who need my help, yeah, my faith is going to feel weak. I'm going to start feeling cynical, and there's no wonder why. I know for me, there is always a correlation in my own experience But when I start to feel cynicism creeping into the way I view things, the way I've lived my life, there's always a correlation between that or my own neglect of my daily time with God or my attendance to the needs of those around me. I think sometimes, you know, we sit around waiting for this faith light bulb to just suddenly come on, but that's not how Simeon practiced waiting for the Messiah. He kept awake in his vigil of watching and waiting by practicing faith daily, practicing justice, spending time in worship of God. My first experience of Anglicanism uh, was living in a neighborhood that prayed together every night. Um, We prayed this bedtime prayer service that's in the Book of Common Prayer called Compline. And one of the last prayers in Compline, the one that really hit me the most and started to get into my bones, is actually the Song of Simeon. Simeon's words for thousands of years have been some of the last words that Christians have said before going to sleep. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace. They've sung this song before going to sleep. And in Compline, Simeon's song, these words are actually bracketed by these other words. It's called an antiphon. It says this, guide us waking, O Lord. And guard us sleeping, that awake we may watch with Christ, and asleep we may rest in peace. That awake we may watch with Christ. It's this image of, of holding a vigil, keeping watch through the night. It reminds me of the scene where Jesus asks his disciples to stay awake with him in the garden, to stay awake and to pray. And they don't do it. They fall asleep. But we are called to stay awake with Christ by walking in daily obedience, increasing our sensitivity to the Spirit, by practicing the love of God and of neighbor. Now, for some of you here today, maybe the first step for you in beating back the cynicism in your life is something utterly unremarkable. Practice the basics of the Christian faith, pray, read your Bible, find ways to serve others. Put in the work to build relationships with people in the church. If you don't know where to start, maybe try praying Compline just a couple times a week before you go to bed. If you need some help or guidance with how to do that, I would love to talk to you or any of our priests would love to help you with that. You might be surprised what happens. So Simeon's attentiveness and his obedience to God made him a person and touched the Spirit and hospitable to hope. They made him a person resistant to cynicism. But I think it's important for us to hear that all of this is not an end in itself. These ways of life that Simeon cultivated prepared him for the most important moment of his life, an encounter with the Messiah. And I do not want you to walk away today just thinking that you've got some tips to maybe try to live a better life. No, our hope is not in our own attention, or our own obedience to God. Our hope is not in our hope. Our faith is not in our faith. I want you and me to be more able to see and to know the one who is the object of our hope and the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. See, ultimately, this scene in Luke is not about Simeon. It's about the child Jesus, hailed as a king of the world before he could sit up, talk, walk, maybe even see further than six inches from his own face. The true miracle is not that that Simeon recognized Jesus. The miracle is that a grown man, hardened by all of his experiences in the world, was brought to his knees, brought to a song of joy, and came away from an experience with nothing but a child, feeling that his life was complete, and that he had found peace that anchored his life in the deepest part of his being. That's miraculous. Nothing else in his life or the world had changed. Israel was still oppressed by Rome. Sickness and death still filled the world around him. But because Simeon had seen the Savior, he knew that all of God's promises of peace, of consolation, restoration, forgiveness, were going to be fulfilled. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so friends, I pray that all of us would not take the easy road of cynicism. Even when our broken world makes it seem like that is the only realistic way to live. Instead, let us offer our attention and our obedience to the only one who is actually strong and faithful enough to hold the weight of our hope. As the writer of Hebrews says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. We don't yet see everything made new and made right, but we see Him. We see the one who is God's promise, his very existence is God's promise to us, that our consolation is coming. And if we know where to look for it, it's already here. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.